Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord to Nathan, I you from the world of Isaac and will help you. Fear not again of my servant, Jezreel, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on thirsty men and streams from the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offering and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up from among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. As always in Isaiah, almost always at least, destruction is not the last word. You know, but now, you know, there's always that, but now, God cannot give them up. He calls Jacob his servant, Israel, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, formed you, who will help you, do not fear. Who, Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I've chosen. Jeshurun means, believe it or not, upright ones. <laughs> of all the people to call upright ones. Justified by God's grace. Made upright by Him. And he pours the water out on the dry ground. He pours his spirit upon their offspring. God gives them new life. He gives them his grace. It's amazing. The continued efforts of God to transform them, to be gracious to them, and to make them his people. It will get to the point where outsiders will want to associate themselves with Israel. They will take pride in affiliating with Israel. They'll, they'll call themselves God's people by the name of Jacob. They'll name Israel's name with honor. You look at the end of verse 28. Israel's been consigned to revilement. And now they name his name with honor. And so you see that continual movement, even when the people turn away from God and God punishes them, he still comes back to blessing them, to forgiving them, to rejuvenating them, to giving them new life, and to using them as the conduit for the nations to come to know God. So that's really remarkable. Comments and questions? <coughs> yes, Mindy. Um, that's a good question. Um, I think because uh, they would be Jacob and not call on the name of Jacob if they were actually Jews. So I think um, that it's, it's better to see this as the nations coming to identify with God's people. There is a debate about that. Some people think that these are Israelites themselves. But I think there, there's a good many analogies to language like this also that I think I think it fits better with the idea of the nations. Other questions and comments? Alright, very good. You've listened well. I think this is a good stopping place and uh, there are a number of ways that you could look at these last 27 chapters of Isaiah. There's a number of themes, but preeminent among these themes is that this book reveals God. And one of the points that he emphasizes so much is the contrast between God and all the competition. He is so much greater, he is so much wiser. He is the real God. 
Now, he talks a lot about the various plans and purposes of God, the blessings that God gives to his people. But as you look at that, really all of that serves to glorify and honor God because you see him as the great God, as the competent, awesome, almighty God who's able to plan and purpose and accomplish what he purposes. So, so that's really a, a theme uh, of this. And you just keep coming back to the challenge, the, the dispute between God and the gods. Who is the real God and what's the evidence? Now on the one hand, he typically, to prove himself, talks about his plans and purposes and how he accomplishes them. You know, and you know he's the one accomplishing them because he told you ahead of time what he was going to do. And that's exactly what happens. Now, if somebody didn't do that, you know, I could say that, well, you know, I was the one that, uh, you know, raised up uh, Clinton and Bush and Obama and the senators and the representatives and all that. And I tell you who it was that I planned to do that with right after the election. Well, that, that doesn't work too, too well, you know. Um, most anybody could say that. But what if, you know, 150 years before, or 700 years before, I say, now, here's what I'm going to do. And 150 years uh, before, I say, now, there's going to be this, uh, this guy who's going to come from various places, but ultimately from Illinois, and he's going to become a senator, and then I'm going to raise him to the presidency, and his name's Obama. Well, now, if I said that 150 years ago, I'd be an old man, and, uh, you know, you know, wow, there's something to that. And uh, so God uses his predictive power to demonstrate that he's really in control of events. That he's the one that's actually purposing and fulfilling his purpose. On the other hand, with the idols, basically, all he does is to challenge them to do the same thing, and they can't. And he describes the process of the manufacture of the images. Now, granted, an idolater might come back and say, oh, that's just the image. You know, that's, that's just what we see. That's not really the God we worship. And I think Isaiah's response would be, prove that there's anything beyond an image. You know, the only reality there is to idolatry is the image. There is no God behind it. So all you've got is the, the product of the manufacturing process. And so when he describes the process of the manufacturing, that in itself is adequate sarcasm to show the total impotence of idolatry. That's where we're at. And uh, so we're in Isaiah 44. Would somebody read 6 to 8? Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God beside me. And who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it to you? And declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. Okay, so look at God's claims. I mean, this is quite a statement, verse 6. He's Jehovah, King of Israel, 
Redeemer, Jehovah of hosts, the first and the last. And there's none besides. That's a mouthful. Do you remember that statement, I am the first and the last, from anywhere outside of Isaiah? Revelation. Revelation. But in Revelation, that was spoken about who? Spoken by who? Jesus. That is an amazing thing. You look at passages like Revelation 117, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Now there can only be one first and one last. You know, if I ask in, you know, some competition, who was in first, and 20 people raise their hand, there's some kind of a problem. And so he's, and, and in these contexts of Isaiah, he stresses the exclusiveness of God. It is not just I'm the first and I'm the last, but I am the only one. There is no one besides me. It is so amazing that Jesus will say, I am the first and the last, taking those statements from context where God is stressing the fact that he is uniquely the only God, Jehovah. Either Jesus was a total fraud and blasphemer, or he is God. And the exclusive only God of Isaiah is not referring to the Father only, but is referring to God, the one complete God that is revealed on the page of Scripture. Jesus is God. And there's a lot to the understanding of the nature of God that is at least beyond me. But for Jesus to use those terms to describe himself, picked up from this context of Isaiah, is to claim to be the only exclusive, unique, very God of gods. And Jesus, in fact, was that. I'm not denying that Jesus on the earth was a man. He was that also. But he is God. All right, uh, thoughts or comments about that idea from verse 6. Is that tied to Isaiah 41 4 when he says, I'm the Lord the first and I'm with the last? Yes. I mean, that would just be more like I'm with you all. Are those tied? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, there are, you know, God is the first in the sense that there was actually no one there when God, what do you say, when God began, except he didn't begin. But he was uniquely the first. Now, there are those that God will provide continual existence of life to who will be with him at the end, even though he's really the ultimate last. But there will be others there with him throughout eternity. So I think saying I am with the last in 41 is just acknowledging that. Saying I am the last here is saying it's ultimately the very reason for the existence of anyone else with him. Good question. You know, and, and so he asked the question in verse 7, who is like me? You know, is there anyone else that can compare 
Alright, if there were, look what they need to do. Let him proclaim and declare it. Uh, let him recount it to me. Let him tell me the things that are Somebody else, if they claim to be God also, then let them provide the evidence through the predictions that they have caused to be fulfilled. God has done that. They have not. And so he comes down in verse 8 to say, Is there any God besides me, or is there any other rock? I know of none. If he's the only rock, then that's saying he's the only what? The only God is the only foundation. He's the only one that we can reliably trust in, rely on, rest on, all other ground is, you know that song? Yeah. It's quicksand anywhere else you go. He is the only rock. You try to plant yourself anywhere else and you're going down. You stand on the Lord squarely and He will support you forever. So, He is God. We just need more of seeing this kind of thing. I mean, the great thing about Isaiah, uh, the greatest of all, is that it's God revealing himself. It's us really being impressed with who God is in his greatness. Thoughts and comments to verse 8. Well, look at the competition. 9 to 20. Those who fashion a graven image are all, all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a God who cast an idol to no profit? <coughs> all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere myths. Let them all assemble themselves, let them stand up, let them tremble, let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arms. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself, and takes a cypress for an oak, and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to, break, to make bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a, a graven image and falls down into it. Half of it he burns in the fire, over this half he eats meat as he, as, as he roasts the roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god. His graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes, so they cannot see in their hearts, so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned 
you need it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned himself aside. And he cannot deliver himself nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? That may be the most complete satire that we see on idolatry. That's intended, I think, to be quite humorous. And is. He says, those who fashion a graven image, all of them are futile. Their precious things are of no profit. They're, they're nothing. They're empty. They're worthless. They have no real existence. And whoever makes them their men and the most they can do is more or less made gods in their own image. It's just a, a total farce. It's a total, totally empty and, and worthless. Um, and so he goes about trying to describe the idol manufacturing process. There's a number of ways that you can analyze this passage. One thing you might do, we're not going to do it uh, this morning necessarily, but, but something that you might look at is to see parallels between idol manufacture and what God has done in creating the world. And, and there's a number of terminology, a lot of terminology, phrases and things that you can even parallel in Isaiah or in the act of creation where you see Really, God created the world, and man creates the, the gods. He creates the idols. And, and so he just he goes through this. He really starts kind of at the end of the process and works his way back. So we start out in verse 12 with the man uh, making uh, iron into a cutting tool and uh, using hammers and a strong arm and, 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 you know, we're kind of looking at the blacksmith shop because probably this idol is going to be overlaid with some kind of metal. And so that, that's kind of the, the finishing process of the idol. Now what about this guy who's working with the metal, with the gold or the silver or whatever? What happens to him in verse 12? He gets tired and he, he gets thirsty and, and all that. He gets worn out. Uh, you know, he's probably a dedicated idol maker. You know, he works hard at this. And uh, by con contrast, remember in chapter 40, what does God do for his servants? And gives he gives them strength. They don't get weird. <laughs> but, but the guy who makes the idol, you know, he does. Um, and... You know, somebody else comes along, and, and this is probably metal overlaying wood. Somebody else comes along and shapes the wood, and, you know, he's got a measuring line. He, you know, he, he measures it off and, and outlines it with chalk. And, and actually, what kind of an image does he make this idol god in? Make himself. Yeah. Yeah, really pretty much the highest thing he's got to go on, got to look at. I mean, it's really hard for you to produce a product that rises above yourself. So, so he makes an idol, more or less, in his own image. You know, that's, that's you know, God made man in, in his image. But, but man makes the idol God in, in his own image. Um... And, and, you know, he does all that so that it can sit in his house. 
Now, before he did that, you know, we started with the metal plating, then we moved back to the, the wood core, but before he can get to the wood core, what does he have to do in verse 14? Yeah, he's got to cut down the tree. Before he does that, he's got to plant the tree. And, and uh, well, all right, so you plant a tree. Every tree you plant grow. Not necessarily. What does it take for a tree to grow? Yeah, you got to have rain. Well, how does he make it rain? Needs another God for that. Yeah. You still exactly make it rain, do you? Uh, that's, that's the Lord. If it weren't for the Lord providing the rain, the tree he planted wouldn't grow and he couldn't cut it to make his idol God. So the very existence of this image depends on the God who gives the rain when it's all said and done. Now I'm going to pause there. Comments and questions through 14 in this idol manufacturing process. Logan? Why is it that uh, starting with Because it's written in more or less a narrative. It's sort of telling the story of making the idol. So it's really not written in poetry. It's written more in story form. Yes, Larry? You know, Gary, it seems odd to me, maybe I'm wrong in this, but it seems odd to me that it's kind of what you said, that, that the idol that we make is never greater than ourselves. And really, it seems like to me that idolatry is you're really not worshiping an idol. What you're really doing is worshiping yourself. I agree. The idol that you make is no greater than yourself. And, and we do that in a lot of ways by the things that we can accomplish. Think about how we try to impress people. You know, like Hezekiah, when Babylon came to, and he said, Look at what I've done. And as you mentioned yesterday, he never said anything about the Lord healing him. We often want to impress people with. What we what we can do, our accomplishments. I can write this song. I can play this guitar. I can run up and down a football field. I'm the star. And so basically, the idols of our lives are not really the things that we worship. They're the image that we try to present to the world, trying to impress people, trying to be someone. When ultimately, only God is. Amen. That's exactly right. That's a good good point, and that's exactly what they were doing. I mean, when you make something and call it your God, you are ultimately worshiping yourself. I think that is exactly right. Tim? Yeah, I think along those lines, there's a parallel between God's creation and this. You know, God made us in his image, but we are, of course, not as, as good as him, I guess. And then, with, you know, man makes his idol in his image, but the idol's not as good as him, but then he's the one to turn on worshiping the idol that's inferior to him, you know. Yes. So there's a parallel, but then it's backwards, because... Uh, we're trying to worship what we've just made less than us. Exactly. It would be like God worshiping us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be uh, rather strange, wouldn't it? Yeah. And it goes back a step further. You know, when he does cut down this tree to make the idol, it says in verse 15 that it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god who worships it. He makes a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts the roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. But the rest of it, 
he makes it to a god, his graven image. He falls down before it worships. He also prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. <laughs> of all things, the rest of it, the part that was not chosen for useful functions, whatever was left over, you know, <laughs> wood for image making was not the priority. Keeping wood and uh, 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 keeping warm and cooking food, that's the priority. But the rest of it, he makes it to his God to bow down and ask him to deliver it. And, uh, you know, here's this block of wood that, you know, ought to have been thankful to the worship that uh, he wasn't chosen already for the fire. It's just, it's just ludicrous. It's foolishness. I mean, they never stop and think about the fact just by my happenstance choice, this block of wood got shaped into an image instead of getting burned up in the fire. He says, you know, God has, has blinded them. They, they, they don't seem to be able to even see what foolishness this whole process is. You know, I fall down before a block of wood and ask the block of wood to save me. Are our idols any better? Are the things we turn to for salvation and deliverance and success any more likely to give that than what the block of wood is? Comments and questions? I was thinking, we do that to God. God is kind of like uh, the rest of it. You know, we, we worry about being warm, we worry about eating and then the rest of our energy, we give it to God. You know, some of our leftovers, we give it to them too. Yes. Yeah. I like the, the, the timing of this aisle maker where he says, deliver me. It's after he has been filled, it's after he is warm, so he's plenty comfortable, you know, in, in his picture here. And then after that, he says, deliver me. Now, are we going to, you know, try to work out our problems by ourselves without God's help? And then finally, you know, when we got it figured out, then we'll say, okay, God, please help me, whatever. We need to come to God first. We need to come to God um, before we try to figure out ourselves. Amen. Chris. What if he had burned the wrong half? I mean, <laughs> burned up his God and he cooked his meal over his God. <laughs> yeah. Good question. Other questions or comments? Isn't it true 
that the first step to coming to God is seeing how empty everything else is that we're relying on. You won't take chemotherapy if you're not convinced you have cancer. And so the first thing the doctor's got to do is prove to you that you're a very sick person. I mean, you know, sometimes people have cancer and they feel fine for a while. And the doctor said, but you're really sick. You've got to have this terrible treatment. You need surgery. Well, that's not good news. But it's a necessary step to receiving the beneficial treatment. And one of the things that, that we've got to do for ourselves and for others is helping us to see the emptiness and the futility of what we're relying on and what we're trying to fill our lives up with and only when we see it so empty will we turn to the wall. <coughs> Other thoughts? John? Well, I've never worshipped any wood or, you know, I've never done no idol worship like this, but not to stand up for them, but I think uh, they're searching for something and that's why they're doing it. You know, I don't think an idol worshiper would say, yeah, I worship that piece of wood. That piece of wood represents something greater and, and they're searching for that. And I think it's our responsibility to help them find that if we, if we see God a little bit more accurately. Yes, and as I said, I think Isaiah's point is there is nothing greater. The only reality that exists is the block of wood. So, that's all there is. So often, people think there's something to what they give their life to. They really believe that there's some ultimate fulfillment in education, in psychology, in philosophy, in worldly success, in entertainment, in athletic sports. You know, in popularity, in politics, you fill in the blank. People actually think that there's something to that, that that's going to really fill them up, it's going to give them meaning and purpose, and it's going to fill everything. The fact is, it won't. And sometimes we think that. Now you look at it. What do we really focus on in our life? What really matters to us? Well, how do you know what really matters to somebody? What they talk about? You know, it is difficult to take away from someone 
what they have always relied on because they don't want to believe that it's empty. They don't want to think that they put all this time and effort and their family and their nation has put all this effort into it and it's really nothing. So people want to imagine and dream that there is something there and that's exactly what happens in our lives when we dedicate ourselves to something. You tell some people that sports really doesn't matter. Or that their occupation really has no ultimate profit. Or it doesn't really matter whether you get an education or not. That what kind of grades you get really aren't important. That you know how successful you are in whatever you're trying to do really in the bottom line is irrelevant. That's saying all the all the time and the effort and the energy that they've invested in that really doesn't have any ultimate benefit. People don't want to hear that. They want to believe that whatever it is that they're hanging on to is going to deliver them. And Christians sometimes do the same thing. You know, sometimes our hobby is the Lord. Our life is filling the blank. And when we do it that way, when when the Lord is, you know, in in second place, then we have an idol. We have a God. And I think this passage would say it's empty. It's meaningless. Other thoughts. All right, 21 to 23. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, in the mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For Yahweh has redeemed you, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. Okay, now, by contrast, here you've got the idol maker who forms his God. In verse 21, God forms Israel. Here in verse 17, the idol maker prays to God for deliverance. And in verse 22, God is the redeemer. He's the deliverer. The idolater takes a tree and bows down to it. But here in verse 23, the trees praise God. What a contrast. And... uh, so you see, God is presenting himself as the true God, as the true creator of his servant. And what, besides making, besides creating his servant, in verse 22, what does he do for his people, his servant? Yeah, redeems the man, does what? Yeah. 
Now, there are a number of these passages, some of them we've already looked at last year, in the first part of Isaiah, where you see God eliminating the sin problem. But you also see God in Isaiah as being the Holy One of Israel. He is the Holy, Holy, Holy God. And that creates some tension. You know, for God to just kind of blow away the sin, just kind of just kind of wipe it out, and yet he's a holy, holy, holy God, creates some tension. How can a holy God just forgive sins? Just cancel the debt? And I think it's worth remembering some passages like this as we get later in Isaiah, because God is ultimately going to show us how he can retain his holiness and still cleanse us from our sins. But here, you just see God doing that. And as a result of this salvation, this redemption, who is asked to praise God in verse 23? The heavens, the earth, and even the mountains and the trees of the forest. Why call on the heavens, the earth, the mountains, and the trees to praise God? He created them. He created them, so they deserve to praise Him. They ought to praise Him. And I think because mankind is not adequate in and of himself to give God all the praise He deserves. We need to call upon all nature to help in praising this great God. You, not only is God great in and of himself, but he looks even greater when you see him compared to the competition. It's like, wow. You know, that's, that's the alternative. Bow down to a block of wood. Ask him for deliverance. What a great God we serve. We ought to break forth in shouts of praise to him. Comments and questions? Uh, yeah, the idolater forms the idol, but Israel is formed by the Lord. The idolater prays to the idol to save him, but the Lord redeems Israel. The idolater bows to a tree, but here every tree praises God. Anything else through 23? Emily? It almost seems like Says 
says to Jerusalem, he shall be good, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. How many times are we going to read these things in Isaiah? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. The focus needs to be on God. He is the great God. He is the creator. He made it all. Now, what do we tend to focus on? Even if we're spiritual, what do we tend to focus on? Yes, ourselves. Our programs. Our church. You know, we tend to even try to convert people to our church. You know, you need to come to our church because we're really good. We're really friendly. We really have some wonderful things going on for young people. We are this. We are that. We are the other thing. Come check us out. See a problem with that? I mean, you might get some folks converted to what a nice group of people you are. But what we really need to do is to become impressed with the greatness and exclusiveness of God and come to worship and serve Him. We talk too much about us and not enough about the Lord. And, and this will help us. We just constantly need to go back to thinking about who God is. Now you take His creative ability. Look at verse 25. This is an amazing statement. What does He say God does in 25? not to happen. Isn't that an incredible power of God? 
You know, every once in a while, you might just think about how some of God's competition seems to get it wrong more than an average percentage of time. You know, a person ought to be able to hit what's right once in a while. You know, but sometimes some of these guys don't do a good job at all. And, and it makes you wonder if there isn't some divine assistance keeping them from ever getting it right. And I think that's exactly what he's saying that God does here. And, and by the same token in verse 26, he confirms the word of his servant. He performs the purpose of his messengers. God sent the messengers of the servant himself. And so God causes whatever they said to happen. They say of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. The cities of Judah, built. The rivers and the sea dried up. God is promising to restore his people, to return them back home, and to build Jerusalem again. And when God says that's what he's going to do, that's what he's going to do, because he's going to control those things. Ah. Um, in verse 27, do you think it's like a reference to, I don't know, crossing the Red Sea? Or yes, I think there's going to be a new exodus. There's going to, he's going to bring his people back home again. He's going to dry up the sea again. Now, this is sort of the climactic prophecy right here in this section of what we've been looking at. You remember back in 41.2, he aroused one from the east and made him successful. And you remember 41.25, he aroused this one, he came from the north, and he made him successful. And... Uh, Seems to me like there's uh, perhaps another passage uh, already uh, about that. Right offhand, I'm not uh, seeing it. But you've got you've got these passages that spoke about Cyrus already, and but he hasn't named him yet. He's just told about him, and now he drops the bombshell in 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Now, we know who Cyrus was. Cyrus was the first Persian emperor. Cyrus conquered the empire of Babylon. You will read about that historically in the biblical book of Daniel's, the best place probably to go, Daniel's chapter, Daniel chapter 5 and 6. Uh, and you'll read about that historically, Herodotus and other uh, historians like that. Daniel wrote about 700. The Cyrus conquering Babylon 539, 141 years later. I don't know. More than that, isn't it? Let's see. 700 down to 539 would be 161 years. Now, obviously Isaiah wrote over a period of time, so we won't nail him down to exactly that, but somewhere in that ballpark, 150 years later, Isaiah is saying, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my... How did God even know there's going to be a person named Cyrus come along? Cyrus hadn't been born yet. And he says, he will perform all my desire. He declares of Jerusalem, she will be built of the temple. Your foundation will be laid. And that's exactly what Cyrus did. He decreed for them to go back and rebuild their city. So this is God 
controlling the history to the point where he's actually able to say who it is that will fulfill this purpose. Now, this is kind of an amazing thing for him to call Cyrus. What does he call him in verse 28? My shepherd. He's going to shepherd his people back to their homeland. Now, can you think of any other passages in the Old Testament in which God named someone by name who was going to come on the scene considerably later? Josiah. Where did God name Josiah ahead of time? First Kings 13. Absolutely. And that was the man of God who said that, and that was 250, 300 years later, that Josiah was going to come on the scene. And he specifically names him in 1 Kings 13 too. I think those are the only two, unless you count the prophecies about Jesus and some that would name him, you know, God with us, Emmanuel, or something like that. But outside of Jesus, I think the only two that actually named the very person. Now, Daniel does some impressive things, but not with names of people. Uh, so I think these two kind of stand out in that sense. Comments and thoughts? Alan? Well, I just can't think how he uh, named Cyrus beforehand. How I, if, he, if I was there with some that, I'd be kind of like scared, you know, will this really happen? Will a guy named Cyrus really arise, I guess? Does that make sense? But he made it happen. Just because it seems so random and so unlikely to happen, I guess. Yes, it really does. You know why it seems that way? Somebody else can do that. Absolutely. <laughs> you take any man who comes along and tries to do that, I challenge you to tell me Who's going to be president 30 years from now? Let alone 150 years from now. I suspect, uh, unless the Constitution has changed, whoever will be president 30 years from now has already been born. May already be in politics, but I bet you not a single one of us will get it right. Now, now you let somebody predict it 150 years later. Yeah, so that's why it seems so unlikely. We're, we're not, you know, we're not able to do that. And that's why this uh, claim of God and this evidence God's presenting is so powerful. If, if there were a handful of people who could do that, then God's claim wouldn't be unique in this. But the fact that not a single soul could do that, we know that's true. Makes this seem audacious. Makes it seem rather, um, I don't know, risky. Well, it's not risky because it's God. But it would be if any man, you know, had enough... Uh, you know, foolishness to try to, to, to do that himself. What would this even have meant to the Israelites, though? You know, would they have even gotten any me- gotten the meaning out of it? Well, I think you could read this and see there's a Cyrus who's going to come along who's going to have Jerusalem be rebuilt. Wasn't even destroyed yet. You're exactly right. Of course, Isaiah's been saying some things that would indicate it would be destroyed. But yeah, you're exactly right. He's predicting it's rebuilding before it's ever been destroyed. Yeah. This is certainly a passage that's going to be stronger and stronger as the fulfillment comes along, as many of the messianic prophecies are dead. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems seems like Isaiah is almost like doing a joint message here where to the people of Isaiah's day, he's saying, 
God is powerful, you know, he's better than his idols because he can predict the future and make it come to pass. But at the same time, it's a comfort for the people being in captivity because what he's predicting and making come to pass is the restoration of Jerusalem and the, and the comfort for God's people. I agree with that. Sometimes we overemphasize something that I think is okay to emphasize a little bit. <laughs> and that is that the prophets were written to the people of their own day. There's a truth in that. But if we overdo that, I think, I think we're wrong. Because I do not think that God commissioned the prophets to reveal things exclusively for their own day. I believe God had in mind to reveal through them things that would be especially helpful to people of later eras. And the book I would especially cite in that way is Daniel. I think that's exactly what God did. Why in the world does Daniel go through these prophecies that were to be sealed up because it applies to many days in the future? Like the prophecies about Antiochus and Hippodes in chapter 8 and chapter 11 and 12 that was for 400 years later. I mean, yeah, it's nice to know what God's going to do, but it didn't really have any practical significance for the people of Daniel's day. I believe God was revealing through Daniel things that were going to be very important for people 400 years later to know. And so I don't think that we ought to imagine that Isaiah's message is designed by God to be relevant to his generation and not to later generations, or even that it would be more relevant to his generation than the later generations. Some of this is going to be more forceful and more helpful after they see the fulfillment than before, in my judgment. Sometimes, it, I think what we all tend to do, and I do this too, somebody comes up with a good idea, and, and they run it in the ground. I'll give you another example. It's a totally different example. But, you know, in the early church history, Origen and some of those guys, and I know very little about early church history, did a lot of allegorizing of almost everything. So they'd take a helm, and they'd make every little detail symbolize something. You know, I mean, the parable of the Good Samaritan, they have the donkey meaning something, and the oil meaning something, and the wine meaning something, the end meaning something, and the two shekels or whatever meaning something, and, you know, just kind of random almost, it seems, and some of that. And, uh, you know, that's obviously a fallacy. So, the pendulum swung back the other way to say there's only one point in a parable. You just look for one point, and all the rest is imagery for that one point. Well, there's some truth in that in comparison with the allegorical view. But you overpress that and you miss some things in some of the parables that are, that are secondary points to that main point that are valid. And so you take a good idea if you don't press it too far and you make a hobby out of it and, and you actually distort things. And so, uh, so I think we just have to keep all of that somewhat in balance. It's true that the prophets wrote to their own day, but it's not true if we push that too far and sort of detach them from later years. Other thoughts? Uh, well, I guess kind of thinking a little bit like applying it to our day, I guess 1 Timothy 3, 16, it talks about all scripture is prophetical. Yeah. Exactly. It is. And uh, it's relevant to us. It speaks to us. 
And some of it may even, in certain times, be more relevant to us than it would have been to those that were originally written to. Other thoughts? Okay, keep going right with this.